Hey, good morning, everyone. Today is the day that the Lord has made, so we're going to rejoice. Amen? Amen. And be glad in it. Hey, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Peace Church. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I really want to make that happen. I'll be hanging around after the service. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I would love, would love to meet you. Today we are closing up a sermon series on Matthew chapter 24. We've called it the sign of the times where we finishing out this chapter today. we got a lot of work we, we need to do. So go ahead and open your Bibles. Head to Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 on down. We're going to close out this chapter today as we look at the hour of Christ's return. Jesus Christ was clear, and the Bible clearly teaches that Christ is coming back. That history does, in fact, have a bookend But I think one of the biggest obstacles for people, when they think about Jesus Christ returning, I think one of the biggest obstacles for them is the amount of time that has gone by between Christ's resurrection and now. We look at the 2,000 years and we think, don't seem like he's coming back for us. Maybe we should move on from this Jesus thing. And I say that to you, not just because I've heard whispers of that, but because someone actually told me that, someone special to me, The man who led me to Christ, the guy who preached the gospel to me, who led me to Christ, was there when I got on my hands and knees and accepted Jesus as my Savior. That guy has since walked away from the faith. And his parting words to the Christian faith was, Jesus isn't coming back for us. So I don't take what we're talking about here lightly. For me, this is life and death. This is the difference between eternity and all is meaningless. You know, I think for Western American-minded people, we pride ourselves on being so smart. We pride ourselves on being the champions of science and reason, and we just love to pride ourselves on being the smartest people on the planet. But yet, what's odd to me in the midst of that is for however smart we think we are, a thousand years for us might as well be forever. It might as well be eternity We are such small beings, but we think so much of ourselves, a thousand years in the grand scheme of things, we think is eternity, but here's the reality. The Bible speaks of a thousand years like it's nothing. uh, Psalm Psalm 90 verse 4 says this. It says, a thousand years in God's sight are like yesterday. In fact, when you read the Bible, you see that between the time of Noah and and the time of Jacob, that was roughly a thousand years. Between the time of Moses and King David, that was roughly a thousand years. Between the calling of Abraham and the coming of Jesus Christ, that was 2,000 years. You know, we read the Bible like it all happened within the span of 50 years. Not realizing that cover to cover, this thing covers thousands of years of history. So when confronted with the question of the hour of Jesus' return and why he hasn't come back yet, the truth is 2,000 years shouldn't be that shocking to us. But still, let's see what our Lord says about his return. Again, Matthew chapter 24, we're going to close out this chapter starting in verse 32. I encourage you to read from your own Bibles. We do have it up on the screen if you need that. But let's read the words of our Lord. Jesus says this. He says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Stop right there for a second. If you weren't with us during the sermon series, uh, let me remind us all that Jesus often speaks in third person in this passage, and the Son of Man is a title that he often uses to refer to himself. So let's pick back up. Let's go back to verse 37. We'll continue. For as we're in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be like the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field and one will be taken and the other one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night that the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the very sobering word of God. Let's pray and let's prepare our hearts to receive this truth. Let's pray. Father God, you are wonderful and your plan is perfect. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you'd open our hearts and minds to receive this truth, Lord. And as Pastor John prayed, that we would be transformed by it. And not only that, but would you lead us into a peace that surpasses understanding. That we may show the world what a joyful patience looks like as we live for and long for and wait for the return of our King. It's in his name we pray these things. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Okay, so I don't know what you were expecting as you walked in here for today's message, but let me just say a few things. The passage that we read today, not even through this entire sermon series, but just the passage today that we read, it has some of Jesus' most confusing, perplexing, and controversial statements. And I'll be honest with you, today will probably feel more like a Bible study than a sermon, and here's the reason behind that. I can't just clump big things together and take big steps through this passage. There are particular things that we need to hold on to and camp out on, and we can't move too fast through these things. So let's walk through our text, and let's see what the Lord says about his own return. He starts off by saying, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. Branches come out, puts out leaves, you know that summer's coming. As so, that is the same when you'll know that the Son of Man is coming. I mean, this is pretty straightforward. Jesus is telling us, for those who have the eyes to watch and the heart to see, we will know when the time is growing short. 
pretty low, not, not that big controversial. That's just the truth. We need to have the eyes to see, the heart to wait for, what, what God's doing in this world. We need to watch out for that. But it's the next verse that is one of the most difficult things for us to grasp with. Let's see what Jesus says. It says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is a very tough verse. This is probably the, the toughest verse, at least in our passage, if not in all of the gospel of Matthew. So we're going to camp out on this one for a few minutes. You know, there are people throughout the ages who have pointed to this exact passage to try to discredit Jesus because he said this would happen within the generation, but the generation came and the end of the world did not come and he did not come back. So people want to point to him and say, see, he's a false prophet. Bertrand Russell even cited this passage in his essay as to why he was not a Christian. So if you're not familiar with the controversy here, let me clarify the tension that we're, that we're trying to deal with here. Is Jesus saying that within the generation of his lifetime, that all these things regarding the end times will have taken place? And just to remind you what we've looked at in this sermon series, all these things would include the gospel being preached to the end of the world, the abomination of desolation coming to desecrate the holy place, a time of severe tribulation for God's people, the coming of false Christs, and the return of the tr true Christs. Now, there are many ways to think about this. I'm going to show you just three, but I'll even concede that even within these three different ways you can look at this, there's nuanced ways in the midst of this. But cards on the table. I'm a good old boy at heart. Just keep it simple for me. So let me just give you three different ways we can try to wrestle with the tension between this generation and all these things. Well, the first one is I kind of just alluded to here. We take everything literal. We take everything as literal, resulting in Jesus being a false prophet. He said all these things will take place within a generation. They didn't take place. Therefore, he's a false prophet. There are people who have landed there. Now, I don't know if you are picked up on this yet or not, but I don't land on this one. Let me look, show you a couple other ways we can try to understand what Jesus is saying here. We take the word generation as literal, and we correlate all these things with local events that happened during Jesus' generation that actually happened or symbolically happened. Now, I'm going I'm to tell you, there are theologians that we very much love and agree with here at Peace Church whose commentaries are in our church library and they land here. R.C. Sproul, a, a profound theologian who's had a great impact on my life and ministry, this is where he lands. He will say, he'll say that all these things, he'll, he'll take it, and it's actually it's phenomenal the way he does it. He'll correlate it with local events that happened. Maybe they actually happened or it symbolically happened. But let me show you a third way. And I'm just going to tell you now, this is, this is generally where I land. We take the word generation as symbolic to mean a specified time of an unspecified length. That really means the generation, the people who live between the life of Christ and the return of Christ, and all these things that we've talked about here throughout this sermon series, all these things maybe partially were fulfilled, but they have not yet been completely fulfilled. The book of Psalms does speak at times with the word generations like this, the way we're talking about here. And I'm just going to tell you, I am well aware of the strong arguments against this third understanding. Okay, I, I did the schooling, I took the tests, I've had the conversations. I understand there's tension here, but I still, I still think Jesus is speaking generation with the word generation as symbolic. 
But I think this highlights something for us here, especially if you are from the West, if you have like a, a really Western American mindset. This, this whole chapter confronts us with something. Math, passages like Matthew 24 highlight the hard part for many of us Western and linear-minded people. We are not good at reading ancient literature. We're not good at reading ancient writings around prophecy or apocalyptic literature. We, we like A plus B equals C type thinking. That's us. I mean, what do we teach our kids from? Textbooks, not storybooks. Because that's how we think here in the West. We like A plus B equals C. We like things to be linear. And if it doesn't fit into our equation, well, we think they're wrong. And really what that does is it highlights for us our absolute narrow-mindedness. That we think the world has to think exactly like we think here in 2021 in America. The world has not always thought like that. The world has not always written like that. And it doesn't mean they're wrong. It means that maybe we need to branch out behind our computers and talk and meet with people who don't think in such linear ways. They, it doesn't mean they're wrong. So to clarify... Even in this tension, I land in the notion that generations speaks of people who live in a certain time. And our time, our generation, is the time between the life of Christ and the return of Christ. Throughout history, there were people who lived in the time of Noah. There were people who lived in the time of the pharaohs. There were people who lived in the time of the monarchy with King David. There were people who lived in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the great history of redemption, we, you and me, we live in the time between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. That's our generation. But just to complicate things, look what Jesus goes on to say. He doesn't make it easy for us. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Do not miss the absolute incredible statement that Jesus just made here. Jesus just told us his words are eternal. That heaven itself could pass away and his words will remain. Do you understand how profound this is, especially given our context? I mean, we're canceling books that were written 30 or 50 years ago. Like We, we can't write things that last beyond one generation. And here Jesus says, my words last not just for one lifetime, but for all lifetimes. This is an incredible claim from our Lord. But yet Jesus just keeps the fun statements coming. Look at this next one, especially, especially in light of this word. Jesus said, my words are eternal. They last forever. And then he says this. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Jesus is speaking to him about himself here. Nor the Son, but the Father only. Yet again, we have one of Jesus' most perplexing quotes. In Jesus' claims to be the Son of God, for a Jewish audience, they would have known exactly what he was saying. We don't necessarily pick up on it. For the Jewish ear, when Jesus said he is the Son of God, they would have heard him say he is equal with God. That was a monumental claim. Jesus claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be God the Son. And along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Trinity. Three in one. Father, 
Son, Spirit, yet eternally one God. So here's the issue. Here's the tension. If Christ has eternal words and he is equal with God the Father, how does he not know what God the Father knows? Does this undermine Jesus' claim to be divine? Well, to be honest with you, I actually don't think this should be that troubling for us. Jesus, in his life on earth, he got tired. He got hungry. Jesus slept. But that does not distract him from being Emmanuel, from being God with us. When God the Son, Jesus Christ, when he existed in eternity with God the Father as God the Son, and he left the right hand of God the Father and came to earth to be born as that baby Jesus Christ on that Christmas day, When Jesus left heaven to come to earth, the Bible makes a profound statement about his incarnation, about his becoming flesh. Scripture says that Jesus emptied himself to take on the form of a servant. Jesus emptied himself. He did not rely on his divinity. He relied on his faith. Jesus came to live the life that we should have lived, a life not led by sight, but a life completely led by faith. And Jesus emptied himself to do this. He gave it all. He left the paradise of heaven to come to live the life that we should have lived so that he could be the sacrifice for our sins. He left it all and he emptied himself. Jesus gave it all up. But look at us. I mean, look at the the absolute contrast to us. Jesus gave it all, but we, we have it all. Seriously, like, what do you lack? I'm not saying there's not people here who deal with major health problems. But I'm saying when it comes to material things, what do you lack? Look at what's going on in the rest of the world and tell me, what do you need? What do you need that you don't have? See, this is us. Like, we, we are people, like, even right now, there are people who are listening to me, no offense, but there are people who are listening to me from the comfort of their home. And people who are on vacation. Hope you enjoy your vacation. Bring me a, something nice. <laughs> but we are people who just live in comfort. We live and breathe comfort. We're, we're hungry for it. We are addicted to it. We, if we, as soon as we get not comfortable, we think something's wrong. Because that's us. Because for us, we have it all and we want it all. And you know what? We call it success and happiness. And Jesus says, you are missing out. You know, on the one hand, you're right. I mean, like, we have it all. We don't lack anything. Yes, that's a blessing. That's a blessing we don't have to worry about where our next meal comes from. That is a blessing. But here's, here's, the, other, here's the other shoe on this one. This can also be a major stumbling block to our faith. Because when we have it all, I mean, what do we need God for? I mean, we have it all, so what do we need God for? Why do we need God again? And here lies the problem. We don't see the great problem of our lives as the sin that separates us from God, which leads to judgment. For us, the great problem in our lives is that we don't have enough stuff. But actually, we do. We have enough stuff. And as I said, we call it happiness and success because we have stuff. And we have a veiled 
idea of what happiness is, but we're truly missing out on the joy that comes with being wholly dependent on God. Jesus gave it all, and we want it all. And we're missing out on joy that comes with truly relying on God for our daily bread. And you know what? This is what ends up happening. We don't need God because we have everything. By the strength of our back and the wit of our will, we have everything that we need. We've built it ourselves. We don't need God. And so we go about our daily lives with this masquerading on success and happiness, going about our merry lives. And you know what Jesus says? That's exactly when he's going to come back. Because that was just what it was like in the days of Noah. Here's what he says. He says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Just like it was in the days of Noah, Jesus says, that's what it's going to be like when I come back. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, being merry, having parties, going about their merry life. And then it started to rain. And they felt those drops around them. And they wished that they were building the ark. And they wished that they were in the ark. But by then, the floods came and swept them away. And that's what it's going to be like when Jesus Christ returns. People will be unaware and they will be swept away. They'll be standing about doing their own thing. Two men will be standing in the field. One's going to be taken. Two women doing their thing. One's going to be taken. And let me just say real quickly here, I don't think this is a prophecy necessarily about the rapture. Because in this scenario, you don't want to be the one swept away. We will get to uh, a discussion on the rapture in our June sermon series. Unless, of course, we get raptured before then. (laughs) Which wouldn't all be together bad. But church, here's, here's Bible Study 101. Bible Study 101 says that when you read a passage, you look for the therefore. Because the word therefore is like a key that unlocks the point of the passage. And Jesus goes on to give us two therefores. Look what he says. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and he would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The point is this. Jesus is telling us that when the end comes, when he comes back, life will be happening as normal. We'll be going to our daughter's basketball games. We'll be hanging out with friends. We'll be kissing our spouse as we leave off to work. We'll be on vacation. We'll be doing homework, hanging out with friends. We'll be watching WandaVision. And then the end will come. Therefore, stay awake. Therefore, be ready. The big point, stay awake, be alert, don't get distracted, don't fall asleep at the wheel. Stay awake. You must also be ready. Eyes open, ready for him to come back at any moment. And then Jesus ends with this wonderful little analogy that should just hit us right between the eyes. He says, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to take care of his household, to give his people food at a proper time. Verse 46, blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect. 
in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites and in that place there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. So Jesus says we're a servant and we can go two ways with our lives. We can, we can be the faithful and the wise servant who simply does what the Lord says. Pretty simple, just do what God says. Or we could be the faithless and wicked servant who sees the length of time the Lord has been gone and we get restless. And therefore we get reckless. And isn't, isn't that us? Is that not people right now? My master is delayed, or as we might translate and say today, Jesus has taken too long to come back. And we get distracted and we forget what we should be doing. We should be working and longing for his return. That should be the priority of our lives. And we become the faithless servant. And the faithless servant is punished. And Jesus uses the analogy of being cut in two. And then it says that he's thrown with the hypocrites. You know, the word hypocrite in Jesus' day, it simply meant stage actor. It's actually the word hypocrite. It's where we get it in English. Hypocrites, uh, hypocrites. And just to help you understand what Jesus is saying here, here's, here's what a hypocrite is. Here's what a stage actor is. It's someone who acts one way in front of people, but it's not who they really are. And Jesus says, the foolish and the faithless servant will be placed with the hypocrites because they say they are a Christian when they are in front of people, but in their lives they do not live like he is returning. They say they are a Christian in front of people, but when you look at their lives, they're not preparing for him to return. And you know the thing about hypocrites? This is what's funny. Nobody likes a hypocrite. We all hate hypocrites, don't we? And I say this, to pull some good things out of you, but if you want to introduce yourself to a hypocrite, we just need look in the mirror. Because you know, in your heart, you say things that you shouldn't be thinking. You, in your heart, you think things you shouldn't say. You know in your heart the judgment you place on people. You know in your heart when no one's looking, that shows you something about yourselves. And that's us. When we look at this, we need to perk our ears up because Jesus is talking about those who are hypocrites. And I have yet to a person who honestly would say they're not or they haven't been. The hypocrite is punished and he is thrown in with the other hypocrites. Because that's, and that's just the beginning of the punishment. He's cut in two and he's thrown in with the hypocrites and that's just the beginning of the punishment. Jesus, again, as he does throughout the Gospels, he uses the language of weeping and gnashing of teeth to talk about, to clearly talk about the punishment of hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth because hell is a place of utter anguish and sorrow. And this is the great sobering thing about the return of Christ and the end times. It will bring about the great separation between those who have prepared for Christ to return and those who lived in hypocrisy. But forever, but for however, these two servants, they seem so different, don't they? But they actually have something in common. I don't know if you picked up on this. They have something in common. They both get what their actions show that they want. 
For the faithful servant, Christ says, if you're going to live like I am going to return, then you get to live with me when I do return. For the faithful servant, this is the one who wants to take care of the master's household, who wants to do what the master says. So in the end, the faithful servant gets the reward of the master's household. We want to prepare for heaven, then we get to live in heaven when Christ comes back. But for the faithless servant, Christ says, if you don't care if I return, if you want to live like I'm not returning, then you don't get to live with me when I do return. It's pretty simple equation. You can have the fruit of your actions, which leads to justice and judgment. And so as we close up this series on the end times, and it's not really a full extensive series on the end times, that would be much longer This has really just been a walkthrough of the sign of the times that Jesus gives us in Matthew 24. But as we close this one up, I want to leave you with one question. How will you be found? How will you be found? When Christ returns, what will he find that your life is all about? Because one thing I'm going to tell you right now, Jesus sees right through the hypocrisy. Jesus sees right through the clutter. Jesus can tell you what is the sum total of your heart, what you center your life around. There's no hiding that from him. What will he find that your life is truly about when he returns? How will you be found? Christians in the house, which servant are you really? Are you the one whose life is living for the Lord because you're longing and waiting for Christ to return? You're living in that joy? Or will you be found just to be a stage actor, a hypocrite, playing Christian in front of people, but you're not at all preparing for his return? The two therefores in this passage, they are stay awake and be, stay awake and be, there it is, that's that's it. Stay awake, be alert, watch and be ready. Live for him to return. When he comes back, What's he going to find your life is all about? I love what verse 46 says. It's probably my favorite verse in this entire passage. He says this. Jesus says this. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so, so doing when he comes. I want to be that one that's found doing what God wants when Jesus returns. I want to be that one when, when Christ comes back. I'm doing exactly what he said I should be doing. I tell you what, that's a challenge, and I don't always measure up to that. And there are days where I'm like, I hope God doesn't come back right now because it won't go well for me. <laughs> but I know, and we should know, it's not on account of what we do. And we're going to take time, and we're going to celebrate communion, which is, reminds us of something profound. And this is what I'd say to you, especially if you have yet, if you have yet, to put your faith in Christ. Let me say this to you. Faith is not about knowing the answers to all the end times. Faith is about knowing the author of the end times. And this is God Almighty who sent his son Jesus Christ to be the sacrifice for your sins and for my sins, to pay the price that we could not pay, to take the judgment that we should take for our own sins, to cleanse us from our sins so that we could be made right before God, to know him. This, is, this should be the longing of our hearts. When we truly understand the love that God has for us in Jesus, we would want nothing else. The question you must answer is, do you know Christ as the Lord of your life and as the lover and the savior of your soul? You will find no one greater. You will find no deeper love than the love that God has for you in Christ. 
the night before Jesus gave up his life on the cross, literally the night before Jesus gave up his life on the cross, he sat with his disciples in the upper room and he took bread and he broke it. And he took a bottle of wine and he, he poured it out. And he was showing his disciples and he shows us that that is symbolically was to represent his broken body and his poured out blood that would be sacrificed for us. This wasn't something that was going to happen in Jesus' future. I mean, this was like 12 hours away for Jesus at this point. And he breaks this bread. He breaks it in half to remind us. So when we see that happening, that is Jesus' flesh tearing for us. As those nails drove through his hands and his feet, his flesh was tearing. His body was being broken and blood would be poured out. And when we see that wine, this is a visual, graphic, brutal reminder of what Christ did so that we wouldn't have to. And not only so would we not have to pay that price, we would then get to be cleansed and made right before God, reconciled to him. This is what life is about. It's about knowing and following Christ and preparing for his return. And one of the most beautiful things that Jesus says when he does this at the Last Supper, he says, do this in remembrance of me. You know why he says that? Because we are forgetful people, aren't we? We forget. We need that constant reminder. If we don't have that constant reminder, we're going to fall in to be that faithless, wicked servant who lives for ourselves instead of longing for the return of Christ. So at Peace Church, every now and again, we're going to have communion together to remind us of what Christ has done for us so that we can go filled and nourished again with his grace to prepare for him. So celebrating communion is one way we prepare for the hour of Christ's return to fill us with the grace to long for and to wait for his return. Amen. Let's pray and prepare our hearts. Father God in heaven, we pray here and now by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit that as we celebrate communion, which the church has been doing for thousands of years since Christ first taught us, that we would by this prepare our hearts and our lives for the hour of the return of our Savior. And I pray, Lord, as we do take communion, this is not just a rote ritual, but this is a vivid reminder of what Christ did so passionately for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would live lives in joyful anticipation as we long for Christ to fulfill all the promises that he's made. Thank you, Lord, for our risen Savior. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.